Hello there, friends. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. And guess what? We have another Sarah on the show today. I swear I know more Sarahs than any other name in the world. And I don't really know what to do about that, except keep having them on my show. So, <laughs> Reverend Sarah Chivari has been an ELCA Lutheran pastor since 2001. She also serves as a certified Daring Way facilitator consultant and certified Dare to Lead facilitator and professional certified coach. Sarah has a huge passion for seeing congregations and church systems strengthened and transformed by developing resiliency and space for authentic conversations. Sarah also writes songs and never passes an opportunity to lead or participate in improv. You can learn more about Sarah at sarahchivari.com. Please welcome my guest, Reverend Sarah Chivari. Hello, Sarah. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Hello, Sarah. It's good to be here with you. I am excited because we haven't seen each other since 2012, right? We saw each other at the first Courage Camp. Oh, right, right. I don't even remember when that was. 16. Yeah. 15. (laughs) Right. Who fucking knows, right? (laughs) I know. It all blends together, but it's also good. It is good. So it's so lovely to have you here. It is great to be here. It's wonderful that you're doing this. Thank you. I'm honored to be able to kind of share this with the world. It's been so fun. Good, good. And I bet you're touching people in ways that is just kind of surprising and beyond what you had imagined. Yeah. I mean, I really, I didn't have any particular aspiration that I'm like, oh, I'm going to accomplish this with the podcast. That's mm-hmm. kind of how all my goals are. I'm like, I just really want to do this. And I think it's going to be helpful. And then like organically, some awesome shit comes out of it. And yeah, I've, <laughs> I love like I've had people reach out to me on Instagram or on Facebook and like tell me how it's impacted them. And I'm like, that's just so fucking cool. Yeah, it is. Yep. Yeah. I think there's always this wonderful creative serendipitous space when we listen to the thing that is our own driving question or our own need or what makes our own heart sing. Yeah, you're so right. So before we, I mean, we're already like diving (laughs) into things, but why don't you tell people who you are and what you do? Got it. I'm Sarah Chivari and I am a Lutheran pastor chaplain. I sometimes call myself a pastorpreneur. (laughs) (laughs) That's adorable. I know, I know, because when we got trained in 2012 in Brene's work, The Daring Way, I had no vision that it was going to be a ministry for me. So ministry Mm. is my second mashup word of the day, I guess, Mm -hmm. which is business and ministry. Mm -hmm. So I serve as a chaplain in a care center, so with elders, and then also people who come after they've had like shoulder surgery or a knee replaced and it's transitional. Hmm. And I've served in that type of ministry really since before I went to seminary, since I was in college. And I can share a little bit more about that as we get deeper into this. And then six years ago, it was out of my own brokenness and my own curiosity Hmm. and holy restlessness to like, what is the next thing for me that brought me to Brene's work Mm. around shame? And it was like this revelation of 
if this is giving me language for things I've experienced in the church, and mm-hmm. if this is giving me language to name some of my own deepest places of hurt, I'm not the only pastor who needs this. Oh, I, yeah. Because of the position we as pastors have of being invited into people's lives in vulnerable spaces, mm-hmm. like I am very dedicated to, we need to be grounded. We need to be healthy. Yeah. And so my passion really came out of that space. So since that point, I've been doing tons of things I never imagined I would do, like having a website Hmm. or becoming an LLC, you know, doing all these business things. But I did them. I just kept doing them, even though they were not necessarily fun or life-giving, but they needed to happen so I could do the, the stuff I felt really called to. So I work predominantly with leaders in the church around leadership development integrating authenticity and your sense of self and pastoral identity. So using Brene's stuff. And then I'm also trained as a coach. So certified okay. certified as a professional coach with the ICF. And I've gotten to travel nationally, working with different churches and different synods. And every day is different. Yeah. I love that about my job too. Like people are like, oh, what's your schedule? I'm like, what day do you want to know my schedule? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever have this thing? Like, I hope I'm not missing something. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Like <laughs> last night we did some security stuff with my website and I lost access to my work calendar and I looked at my phone and I'm like, literally, I have no idea what I'm doing tomorrow. Like there's just so much stuff. I can't even yes. remember what I'm supposed to do the next day. And I'm like, this will not do. And I'm like emailing my IT guy in the middle of the night. <laughs> yes, I, I totally get that. Mm-hmm. I told my mom a few months ago, I know what I'm doing tomorrow. Yes. And I know what I'm doing in four months. Right. Like, right. What I'm doing in two weeks, four weeks out. Yep. I know something's happening, but I'm not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. We'll get there. Well, I'm really excited to hear you talk about the desire for pastors to be really in touch with their authentic selves and to do the healing. Cause I think it's very much like therapists, right? Like we are really invited to one of the most intimate types of relationships you can have. And if the pastor is not seeing the person clearly and the therapist exactly the same, like there's so much wounding that can happen because of that power differential. That's like, I mean, a lot of the people that I've talked to on the podcast, we've talked about some sort of spiritual wound that they've had. So God bless you for doing this work, literally. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. It's really what I feel called to be about. So going back to working in long-term care, I think that's really where a lot of my awareness of how organized religion can be grounding. It can be a gift. It can unite people together with and for one another. And I would see elders where their church had been their home for Mm -hmm. years and years and years. And their sense of being able to leave this world with peace in their heart was present. So I started as a chaplain in my hometown nursing home when I was 21. And pastors will talk about their call to Mm, ministry. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And mine was honestly a phone call. (laughs) Yes, yes. My mom called me up. I was in college and she said, hey, the good Sam wants you to be the chaplain this summer. And I said, 
uh, do they know I've had two classes in religion? Hmm. And she said, yeah, and they want you to do it anyway. So, (laughs) (laughs) right. And it was this tremendous experience of having very low expectations of myself Hmm. because I wasn't trying to over promise or over deliver. Like I could really enter in with this sense of they know who I am and they know the limitations of my education. And I fell in love with it. Mm. I just loved it. It was like going to this foreign land, but people had the same last names as my classmates. And that was my friend from high school's best friend's grandma. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. all of these interlocking connections, but I started Mm. also to hear stories of really painful woundedness and some of it coming because of how church communities had responded to trauma Mm -hmm. or had responded to Mm -hmm. really hard life choices, really hard decisions that people have had to make. And sitting with people at the end of their life, holding that space, there's deep, deep, deep woundedness here still. And Mm -hmm. can we bring forgiveness into this space? Can they hear those words that God does hold you as beloved? Right. You are not defined by that one moment. You are forgiven. Like all those things we need to hear. Yeah. Can we like really dig into like your thoughts about religion? Because that that's something that probably when we first met, no, definitely when we first met, I was at a stage where religion was definitely something that I was pushing away. And it wasn't until my parents died And particularly my mom, because my mom was the one who had really kind of forced her belief system onto us. And once she died, part of my grief process was truly exploring spirituality for myself without any sort of observer. Like there was nobody to please. There was nobody to defy, you know, Mm -hmm. all this sort of stuff. And I found a home a spiritual home for myself. And it doesn't look like what my mom really set out for us. But it's all the same value system. And the thing that I've realized is like religion can be used as a weapon. And for sure, I mean, anything can be used as a weapon. And that's always the fear that I have when you said like, God believes you're beloved. God believes you're beloved, whether you've done fucked up things or not. I mean, everybody's done fucked up things, right? Mm -hmm. But like, especially Mm -hmm. when I work with people who are struggling with addiction, Addiction makes people do really bad stuff Mm -hmm. and they just have this belief that either I'm bad because I did these things or I'm good if I don't do these things. Yeah. Can you speak to, it's not even a question, but just say stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Just say stuff. Just say whatever. Okay. Yeah. I will just start saying stuff. Yeah. Well, I remember when our training ended, you and I, we went to the LMO. Yes. Someone else came along with us. Yes. And the three of us, like, I remember we're in the gift shop picking out ornaments or some crazy Mm -hmm, thing. mm -hmm. And I had to get in a taxi. You had to go like, we Mm -hmm. knew we had 20 minutes before this like deep dive into talking about our woundedness was going to end. And we're like over the ornaments, you know, talking about the things that have happened that have really been difficult or struggles. So this is like picking up right from, right from there. Yeah. So I think religion, when it's connected to fear Mm -hmm. of losing control. Oh, yes. (laughs) 
Ooh, you just hit my heart space. Yep. I think when religion is connected to control, it loses the core of the space of mystery, the Mm. space of trusting that I don't have to have it all figured out. And there's a book by Peter Enns, which is called The Sin of Certainty. Oh, yeah. If you could ever get him on Sarah, like that would be cool. He has a podcast as well. So, Mm, okay. Yeah. A little bit about his background. He he taught at a Bible college of some type. I don't remember the denomination. And he started moving into a space of questioning, like, well, what if and what about? And there was pushback that those type of questions weren't welcome. So anything can become a system of knowing what the right answers are. Right. So I think it was working out of that space. And so for him to continue to dwell in these questions was really an arena. I mean, he was really daring greatly Mm -hmm. to continue doing that. And what he came down to in the book, kind of the book tells of his experience and what cracked open for him and how he read scripture differently after that. Mm. It was really good read. But what it came down to is in the Christian context, which is what I'll frame it in because that's what I am. Yeah. It's about God desiring a relationship with you that's trust, that's on trust. Trust can get replaced with certainty. Yeah. And in a subtle shift, maybe we would say, but don't those things kind of go together? <laughs> Not at yeah. all. Yeah. There's, oh, I can't remember his name right now, but there's a podcast that I've been listening to that are sermons, essentially Ordinary Life, I think it is. Actually, Robert Hilliker was the one who turned me on to this guy. And this whole year has been doing a series on Christian fundamentalism and how dangerous that is. And that's exactly what he talks about is that it's this desire for certainty and control And shame is the best way to Mm -hmm. control people. When people are like, blah, blah, Catholic guilt, I'm like, no, no, no. It's Catholic shame. Let's be real about that. And historically, when religion really started, people needed to be controlled in order to, like, make sure people could stay alive, right? That's when the bubonic plague was happening and all these things. So, (laughs) like, it made sense at the time. And we've outgrown that but not everybody's outgrown the fear. For sure. Richard Rohr. Do you know of Richard Rohr? I have heard that name and I don't know why. He is a prolific writer, thinker. Um, Amazing. He does a lot with toxic masculinity. He has... Okay, that's probably where I've heard it. He's written like literally dozens of books. He's known internationally and... He's a Catholic priest who really brings in psychological development. Mm -hmm. So he talks about how our consciousness has developed throughout history. And so Mm -hmm. what we understand now can be different than what was understood when the bubonic plague was going on. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So we'll just kind of jump in here. Where I see that then playing out on a corporate level, one way I see it is when there is a separation then of what is my Christian calling in the world? So Lutheran, we talk a lot about love God and love your neighbor, serve God, serve your neighbor, Mm -hmm. and valuing creation, valuing other people. And I think when faith becomes a way to insulate us from other people's brokenness, right? If I've got it figured out, I don't have to 
feel this. I don't have to be with you on that hard thing. Then we are not going to be Mm -hmm. of service to our neighbor because we've pulled back. Mm -hmm. We are not going to be concerned about what the future looks like because, you know, it might be easy to fall back into, well, I've got it figured out for me and mine. Right. I think it gets really nuanced. Mm hmm. Well, and this is what's happening in politics right now, too, because that's kind of this divide between the conservative mindset of me first, me and my family first, like I have to get what's fair. And then the other side where it's like, no, 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 like we have to share resources because the one percent actually has control of most of the resources. So Mm. you got to fucking share that shit. Right. Like. (laughs) it's not about abortion. It's not about gay marriage. It's about fucking sharing resources. And that's the thing that makes me so frustrated when I hear people aligning with an agenda that's not actually perpetuating the thing that they're really interested in. They're signing up for something that's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) to be totally churchy liturgical on you, in the Lutheran tradition and in lots of traditions, Confession is part of the worship service. Mm. And Hmm. what I love about that is it's recognizing that there is this breach, this gap between who we think we are Mm -hmm. and who we're called to be. That just gave me chills. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think in the best sense of that, like that is a gift that the church can be giving to the world. Not, and I don't mean that like hammer over the head at all. Yeah. That is not how I am in the world. And I know being a pastor in the world today, I think it requires a lot of humility, a lot of curiosity, a lot of tell me what that means for you. So in the confession, it mines this gap of this is who I want myself to be. Yeah. But there's this space where I recognize that I fall short of that all of the time. Mm-hmm. And so I think in recognizing that we're doing it in community. So we need one another. And it's acknowledging that our work, our inner work on ourselves is never done. It's never done. I don't think faith and religion are ever about, okay, now I've arrived, you know, now I'm I'm just, I've got it all figured out. I'm good. Mm -hmm. I think it's more about, I'm showing up because this is what I understand following Christ looks like for Mm -hmm. me. You know, I'm just going to keep showing Mm -hmm. up. I don't have to have all the answers. I just need to show up and be as present and authentic in those moments as I can. And in order to do that, we have to be able to practice so much self-compassion, I think. Yeah. Oh, that's so good, Sarah. Well, because that's that space between like, if I do something bad, I'm wrong. And those of us who suffer from chronic shame, that's what we can fall into. Mm -hmm. Personally, it was revelatory for me. And like, I don't use that word flippantly. Mm -hmm. Like it was revelatory for me to understand what shame is, how it works, because I started reading scripture differently. And Mm -hmm. I realized, well, not everybody reads scripture the way I do. I realize I read it through a shame lens. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I'm a freaking pastor. Like, yeah, (laughs) yeah. That's really my spiritual work, a piece of it. (laughs) There's tons more. Mm -hmm. But a piece of it is like, oh, like I don't have to interpret this scripture in the most judgmental, strict, Mm -hmm. death dealing kind of way. Mm hmm. Because you do have to take into account the cultural time within which it was written. 
Yes. Right. Yes. And I could do that. I mean, I studied that Mm -hmm. tons. My own shame lens Mm -hmm. was just so strong. And then I went through this period of like, oh, why are there not more stage directions in like the gospels? Why are there not more adverbs? And then Jesus chortled and said, you know, whatever it is he's going to say next. Or then, you know, they chagrined. I mean, that Mm. would fill it out because when you're reading it, we all have a lens of Mm -hmm. how we're reading it. Don't even know what that lens is until we start like getting aware of it or we hear Mm -hmm. what other people's lenses are. So one of the things I found really helpful is there's a story, the rich young ruler, and he comes and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is like, this, this, and this. And he's like, well, I've done all of that. And he says, well, and you also need to give everything you have to the poor. And he walks away because he's rich. And that's a big, big pill to swallow. And in Mark's telling of that story, it says, Jesus looked at him with love. Mm. Like Jesus gives him compassion before he says the truth. Mm-hmm. He looks at him with compassion. And so I don't know, is it helpful if I tell you another story sure. that's for me? Sure, it, yeah. So at the end of John's gospel, there's this story of the resurrected Christ meeting the disciples and they've been out fishing and then they come back and they have a meal on the beach with Jesus. And then Jesus reinstates Peter and Peter in the crucifixion narrative, Peter betrays Jesus right. three times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of John's gospel, you know, Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? And so for a long time, I was like, well, that's really, you know, a repetition of numbers repeats throughout scripture. But for a long time, I was like, well, this is theological mind candy, right? That one for one. Then after really digging into shame and vulnerability and connection and empathy. So getting back to the self-compassion piece you offered, Mm -hmm, Sarah, the mm -hmm. empathy. Now I understand it that if Peter was really going to be able to do what he'd been called to do, like to be this powerhouse leader in the church, he had to do that inner work of going to the deepest, hardest place of shame Mm. in his story, which was that denial. And I feel like it has nothing really to do with the three and three anymore. I mean, that's still cool, right? Mm, But mm -hmm. I think it has to do with If Jesus had needed to ask Peter the question 17 times or 25, whatever it was, Mm -hmm. it would have been continually asked because it was on a third time that Peter felt hurt. Right, right. I've done that before in therapy where I ask a question and the person gives me a canned answer and then I ask again and they give a canned answer and they ask again until you get to the actual emotion underneath. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I see that, right? I see that. And it was always there. I just didn't have the eyes to see it. I had a lens that needed to expand. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. So when you are in that space of you get the canned answer and you ask again and you ask again, Mm -hmm. can I ask Sarah, what's going on inside of you that you just intuit? Yeah. We're going to hang out in this space. That's a really good question. It's funny because I've had a couple psychics that I've interviewed recently, and we've talked about that knowing and how do you develop that sense of knowing. And part of it I've realized is actually like a nervous system connection, like being able to really tune into somebody else's energy from a nervous system perspective and feel whether they're engaged or not. 
And part of it is just knowing what true emotion looks like, actually like seeing on someone's face whether they're checked into that or not. And then part of it is kind of just this intuitive gift that I developed probably in my family of origin because there was so Mm -hmm. much denial of real feeling. I know what that looks like and I know what it looks like when you're actually in the feeling. So I would say a combination of all of that. Yeah. I think of symbiotic resonance. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that would be like the nervous system stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I want to bring up just because as I'm talking to guests, I'm always also trying to listen with the ear of someone who might be a skeptic or someone who might be rejecting is the wrong word, but someone who might be pushing things away. And a thing that I've Mm -hmm. noticed as you're talking, there are certain words that trigger a barrier for me. And it's because of my own religious wounding. And I'm saying this to really open up the conversation, not to Sarah, you have to change your language or this Sarah, I have to change the way I do it, but just Mm -hmm. to examine it because this is what we don't do, right? So like scripture, Jesus, Mm -hmm. There was one other word. I can't remember what it was, but when you said it, I felt it inside of me like a little wall went up in front of my heart. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it just it makes me think about my mother and how you talked about, you know, that that fear of uncertainty. And Mm -hmm. because of my mom's wounding outside of the church, the church was the safest place for her and the only place where she felt loved. Like, I know that, I know that, but there's this part of me that's like, but you used that to hurt me. And it's so hard to transcend that, even though you're saying these things and it has nothing, it has nothing to do with that, right? It has nothing to do with me. You're just like, this is the language that you speak. It's just, it's fascinating and frustrating and beautiful all at the same time. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. I get that. So thank you for sharing Thank you, one, for sharing like what's going on for you. And then also a bit about your mom. When you talked about it was a place she felt loved Mm -hmm. and yet it was a place that brought wounding to you. Well, let me modify that a little bit because I actually felt really secure and loved in the church. But the way that my mom used her understanding of religion and the expectations that she put on me because of that, that was where the wounding happened. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for filling that out for me. Yeah, for sure. I get that. I think it's interesting. So in my work as a chaplain, it's super diverse. It's super ecumenical. Mm. It's super interfaith. So we meet everyone who comes into our care center just to introduce ourselves. And I have really interesting conversations with people. And I also am aware of what words trigger for me within the Christian community. Right. What are those? Victory in Jesus. Mm. That would be one. When I hear someone say, you're ELCA. What's that? So, okay, ELCA. Yep, that's my church body, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Okay. And we are a more liberal, progressive church body. Hmm. And so I have been judged many times for not being Christian enough because. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because of my denomination. Mm -hmm. And here's a story 
actually about that. Yeah. When our daughter was 11 months old, I don't know, 13 months old, I had switched to being at the care center I'm at currently and we wanted her to be cared for in our home. So we were mm-hmm. looking to hire a nanny and we found a candidate that we're like, okay, I think this is going to be a good fit. And I called the reference and we were having this conversation and there's this subtle shift from talking about the candidate to talking about what I do. Oh, you're a chaplain in a care center. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. And then out of nowhere, this person I've just gotten on the phone with says to me, like I've never met her. She says, you know, just because you're a chaplain doesn't mean you're a Christian. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in one sense, yes, that's true. There right. are Buddhist chaplains, there are Jewish chaplains, mm-hmm, there are Muslim mm-hmm. chaplains, there are spiritual but not religious chaplains. Mm-hmm. But what she was saying was, you know what? I'm judging you and don't yeah. think that right. because of your title or your role mm-hmm. that you are, in my mind, who you say you are. Right. And also it sounds like, too, she wasn't because some people will automatically trust a pastor, a chaplain, a therapist. And some people who have been hurt by those people will not mm-hmm. want to give their power away so easily. Mm-hmm. Her husband was a pastor. So I think the perspective was more of your Christianity light. I hear what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, it could have been that story too. Yeah, that's really. Mm-hmm. And there are people who say that to me as well. I'm done with religion. Mm-hmm. I'm fed up with religion. I've had too much of that already. I've been disappointed. Yeah, mm-hmm. I get it. And on the converse side, you know, I've had situations where I think, okay, maybe this is somebody who is going to find me lacking as being in this role. And then those people that, to use Brene's language, I'm already thinking they might be in the cheap seats. And Mm -hmm. then we have conversations and they are in the support section. Yeah, And they're just so thrilled about the work that's happening because of spiritual care being there. They're just Mm -hmm. so affirming and encouraging. Hmm. So I've learned to be as open to where people are as possible. Yeah, my work lately, I feel like, because I had to be able to discern very quickly if you're emotionally safe for me or you're not. And so Ah. I put up these judgmental barriers and I've put people in categories, right? You're safe or you're not, which means if you're not safe, you're bad also. And I mean, that's like a rudimentary way of explaining it, but just recognizing that how much that's getting in the way of my own spiritual growth right now. And how can I still put a boundary if I don't feel like you're emotionally safe, but also not think that either I'm better than you or you're not doing it right or you're a bad person or those sorts of things. And those nuances, like you were kind of talking about earlier, that's where the deep work is. And I think of the self-compassion, which I think you talked Mm -hmm. about earlier, the self-compassion for you that there's woundedness. And for me to discern emotional safety, there's also at this rudimentary level, this piece that comes with that to understand how people fit and for you to hold yourself in that process as well. Right. So I'm very, very curious 
how you interpret the word healer in terms of your own work. <laughs> well, I'm going to I'm going to give myself permission just to circle back and to say yeah, yeah. thank you for sharing what was going on for you when I was using some of my words when I said scripture and I said Jesus because preparing for this for me to be authentic there are yep. words that I I know are authentic for me mm-hmm. and yet I can feel a lot of pressure yeah to not voice those words And so I appreciate kind of what you got to of when words are authentic, but they have been used and are used to demean or diminish, Mm -hmm. to subjugate people. And they don't mean that to some people. And it's been the experience of some people that they are incredibly destructive, like being able to have a more open conversation. Where do you think that takes us? Well, I think... Not that we have to like be all Brene fangirl here, but I really did love Braving the Wilderness and how she was talking about it's harder to hate up close. Mm -hmm. And it's so easy to make this sweeping generalization that Christians are all hypocrites because that's something that I experienced in my family and still do to this day of you can say these things, you can say that you believe them, but if you're not practicing them, then you're a hypocrite. But that's not true for everyone. And so when we have these really intimate conversations and create space for that, I think that that's a healing energy. That's like a salve. It's interesting. I'm thinking Mm -hmm. about like my intro for this podcast. I probably will put a trigger warning for people. And I think I need to do that because I think that the people who listen to this, a lot of them do have that spiritual wounding. And Trigger warning is like too harsh of a word, but just this recognition that we're talking about religion, we're talking about the nuances of how we can get hurt, but also the way that you're talking about it. You're talking about this in the same way that my psychics talk about energy, that tarot readers talk about the divination, like you're saying the same thing. And that's what I want people to really hear is there's a language of love. And I think Mm. that's what you're Mm -hmm. speaking. And if we have not cultivated the discernment in order to differentiate language of love versus the imposters, Mm. then it's easy to get confused and it's easy to get hurt. But you and I have done this authenticity and the shame work for long enough that we know how to really recognize it. And I knew how to recognize it earlier. I just didn't have the language for it. So I'm so appreciative of really being able to just have this space together and for people to witness it, you know? Yeah. When I listen to what you're saying, I'm like, oh, the words that come for me, you know, when I go through my work of, is this space safe? Is Mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. person safe? I come down to some like just phrases. Do I feel like they are with me and for me? Mm -hmm. In their presence, am I being humble? And am I being curious? Mm -hmm. And are they extending those or similar things to me? Right. Yeah, because my experience in the landscape of Christianity, I can feel like I've got somebody figured out based on their denomination. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, Mm -hmm. they are not going to be a safe person for me. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they are not. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. sometimes I am really surprised. Like just that things I think would divide us, that language of love. 
Yeah. It's, it's about, I see you, you see me. And as you said that, it was just also making me think too, because when we're consumed by fear and this yeah. desire for certainty, we don't have the ability to be extending care and love and all those things because we're so busy trying to protect ourselves. And yeah. that's what gets in the way. Yes. Mm-hmm. That might be a good segue into the question about healer. There you go. Yeah. Look at us. Look at that. Full circle. <laughs> So I don't use the phrase healer, but I very much want to be creating and holding space Mm -hmm. for that to happen for people. And I thought about wounded. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. I definitely know I'm wounded. Definitely want to preach from my scars and not my wounds. That's something that's talked a lot about, like Mm. having done enough of my own work on stuff and even presenting, you know, if I'm keynoting, when I share a story, I have to be okay with whatever reaction comes Mm -hmm. and not have my grounding be affected by that, Mm -hmm. right? So I need to have done my own, own work around it. I'm also drawn to recognizing how I have wounded other people. Yeah. Oh, thank you for saying that. (laughs) And yeah, go on, go on. I'm listening. (laughs) Yeah. So I have wounded people. There's been times when I have intentionally hurt people. Yeah. I would like to think they are few and far between and there are more of them in junior high. (laughs) Right. And high school, like I'm pretty sure that there are. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, right, right. Growth happens. But I know that I wound people unintentionally, you know, all the time. Mm -hmm. So I write songs just because it feeds my soul. It makes me super, super happy and really grounded. Mm -hmm. And one night when our son was probably about four, he said, Mama, will you cuddle with me? And I was like, oh, I have so much to do. No, I can't. That's what's going on in my head. Like, Mm -hmm. no, this is just one more thing. But I'm like, yeah, I can cuddle with you, sweetie. So I get in bed and he says, will you sing me a song? And so this Mm. song just starts coming to me. And one of the lyrics is, tell me what's in your heart. You have wounds that bear my name. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know when I'm most likely to wound somebody is when I'm feeling really wounded myself. Right. Hurt people, hurt people. Yep. When I'm not taking care of myself, when I'm denying that I'm in struggle or I'm exhausted or I feel overwhelmed, that's when I'm in that landscape of I'm going to do something that I'm going to regret later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I have to come back and make right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a culture, we need to develop more mindfulness in order to try to either prevent that from happening or being able to circle back and you know, as you're talking about needing to be grounded in order to not be, you didn't say this word, but I'm going to say kind of like triggered and thrown Mm -hmm. off your axis a bit. I've been thinking a lot lately about, from a psychological perspective, building ego strength in order to tolerate criticism, to tolerate hurt, pain, discomfort. But then the spiritual work is being able to let go of the ego in order to You have to be able to tolerate Mm -hmm. criticism and then you have to be able to own your part of it and to own your part of it. You have to let go of the ego. So there's this like beautiful balance of ego strength and releasing that at the same time. Yeah. 
We got lifelong work. I know. I know. I'm like really trying to figure out like, how do I take Brene's work and like take it to the next level? And that's part of what I'm thinking about is that that ego piece and like denial, how that is perpetuated by shame and, and who transcends it and who doesn't. And what stories do we know are confabulations and conspiracies. Mm-hmm. And it's easier to continue living in those than it is to live into the hurt of saying, no, Mm -hmm. no, that's actually not the truth of things. That's actually not how things were. Right. A really good example, because I just ran a shame group at a a detox center. And Mm -hmm. this happens all the time where a person was saying like, oh, he's like, I'm feeling so much shame. And my parents and my girlfriend and everybody's saying, but, you know, well, what about your job? And didn't you think about this? Like, what are you going to do with your life? And he said, what do I say to them? Like, how do I tell them not to shame me? And I said, well, you have to recognize they're saying that because of fear. And I said, unfortunately, as the person in recovery, you have to do the emotional labor to help other people understand. But if you can align with their fear and say, yeah, I'm really scared too. I don't know what's going to happen on the other end of this. So we're in this together and that's the joining that happens rather than like, okay, you're living in this space. The story that you've made up is I'm not successful because I'm an alcoholic and I relapsed and now I'm in treatment again, where it's like, let's just talk about the fucking feelings underneath because that's really what's most important. Right. And it's way more vulnerable for the person in detox to say to the family, Mm -hmm, you know what? mm -hmm. I'm really scared too. Mm -hmm. If you have a family who's, you know, wanting to hear different words, Mm -hmm. that's a really vulnerable space. But the beauty of being able to occupy that is it's true and it's authentic and Mm -hmm. you live into that together. And yeah. Yeah. That's the hope anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hard work Mm -hmm. for sure. Well, we are coming up towards the end of the hour here, and I want to give you an opportunity. If there's something that we didn't talk about that you really want to share with people, I'd love to give you space for that. Yeah, I have just started writing a book. I am going to be looking at a bunch of experiences I've had in leadership in the church, and it's looking at being authentic and grounded in a tumultuous landscape of leadership. So Mm. stories of when I've experienced judgment and Mm. how woundedness has come from that. Stories of making decisions that weren't by the book and Mm -hmm. how that was the authentic choice. Mm -hmm. And then gathering insights and conversations from others in helping professions. So looking at what's going on in healthcare today. Mm -hmm. So how do we teach well in schools when we're emotionally tapped out? Right. That's awesome. It is a new arena. Yeah, (laughs) it sure is. You know, I feel for me, I think we got on the train of shame, resilience and authenticity right at the right time where doing that work at least for me, and it sounds like for you, has kind of just propelled this this snowball of organic professional growth in a really cool way. I'm so I'm just so excited to hear about this for you. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, I agree. I tell people I got to the party like early yeah. on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know when people yeah. reach out now and they're like, should I do Brene Brown's training? Now I'm like, well, 
no, because everybody else has done it. <laughs> Find a new guru. But truthfully, yeah, we were there in the beginning. And so it gave us opportunities that it doesn't create for people now who are getting to the party late. Yeah. I remember, you know, in the beginning, talking to a group of pastors, let's say, and just doing like a, hey, this is the one, two, three of what Mm -hmm. this work is about. If you want to do more, let's talk. And 60%, 65%, not knowing Brene. And now 20% not knowing yeah, I'm I'm always shocked now too when just just because yeah, she's been everywhere. Like really, if you haven't heard about her, there's something wrong with you. Get your head out of the sand. <laughs> her stuff is very out there in our culture. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for the invitation to be in conversation with you. It's really been delightful for me. Oh good. Me too. I hope it's helpful to you and your listeners. It's great to be in conversation, Sarah. Yeah, it's wonderful. I'm really excited to share this. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to Sarah for being my guest today. And as always, thank you to Andrea Clunder and Edwin Ruiz at the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. To find more about Sarah, you can go to www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time. Bye-bye.